Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and, Lord, for meeting us where we are and entering into the mess that is often, and if we're honest, always our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this uh, four-part class is inspired largely by a book that uh, John Z wrote. And uh, I mean, when you write a book and you just use your initial, it's only a matter of seconds before we find out who you really are. But of course, it's John Zoll. Uh, and John Zoll, his dad, of course, Paul, was here at the Advent, and John is an Episcopal minister in Charleston, South Carolina. And so if y'all are ever at the beach, Sullivan's Island or Isle of Palms, uh, you can go check uh, John out. He's at Grace Church downtown. Only go if John's preaching. Uh, if he's not, go worship at St. Mattress by the Springs or Bedside Baptist or one of those places. <laughs> I forgive you. Uh, but John has a lot of insight in all this. You can read his story there in uh, the introduction, and we'll talk about his story a little bit. Uh, but uh, he's talking about the where Alcoholics Anonymous and the church, uh, where they intersect, and that AA actually has a lot to say to us as human beings, and in some ways is more on target than the church has been uh, for a long time in addressing uh, how the church deals with sinners, those who find themselves uh, struggling uh, with life. Because many of us may not say that uh, we are addicted to any substance, uh, but the fact of the matter is that we're addicted to ourselves. We really are into us. And uh, how is it that we deal with that uh, addiction? And um, so uh, Sam uh, Shoemaker has a really wonderful quote, and he said, everyone either has a problem, is a problem, or lives with a problem. <laughs> and uh, that is absolutely true. In fact, the roots of AA are in the Episcopal Church. You can go up to uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and visit Calvary Church. If uh, I think it was Lent, I'm glad Gil's here, Lent two years ago, uh, a guy named Jacob Smith came to preach. Remember Jacob? The thing you might remember about Jacob is for some reason I told him that he probably should do something about this. He had this leather-bound Bible that had a gigantic strap that would wrap around it. So he would read the scripture for the sermon and it would take him five minutes to sort of wrap it all back up and I'd be like, just cut it, just cut the strap. Uh, but uh, if you remember him, he's at Calvary Church in New York City and then Sam Shoemaker went on to become the rector of Calvary Church in Pittsburgh. And some of you may be familiar with the Pittsburgh experiment. Uh, it's worth looking up. It's an interesting take on things uh, about um, using the business community to evangelize a city. So that being said, uh, Bill W., Bill Wilson, who wrote the big book and was the father of AA, uh, was close friends with Sam Shoemaker, and some of the steps for Alcoholics Anonymous were actually written down in Sam Shoemaker's study at Calvary Church in New York City. And providentially, John Zoll went to nursery school at Calvary Church, New York City, when Paul was Fitz Allison's assistant at Grace Church uh, down the road uh, on Broadway uh, across the street from NYU. So that's where the intersections are, and Bill W. and certainly Sam Shoemaker had a profound Christian faith, and they applied those principles to AA, and there is a complaint uh, oftentimes about AA that it's not specific enough. And yet, uh, the idea is right. 
and how the Bible deals with sinners. And AA has something to say that is in sync with the Bible, especially as it pertains to individuals and the struggle with sin. John talks about the time when uh, he had turned to addiction, and John had moved around a lot in schools, and uh, he talks uh, about getting stopped at some European airport uh, for a frisk down, a pat down, uh, and he didn't understand why, although he was wearing a Mickey Mouse t-shirt, and Mickey Mouse had three eyes, three ears, a peg leg, and John himself had pigtails. And he just thought, why are they targeting me? Uh, and he said, well, if they were looking for drug paraphernalia, their system works. Um, and he writes, Despite my behavior and the damage it caused, getting into trouble was never very effective in dissuading me from abusing. If anything, it inspired me to be more crafty and deceitful. Uh, that's one of the things about sins. You know, if, if we all did an inventory of our lives, uh, we would find that there are certain things that rise to the top of the list of thing, you know, sins that we struggle with. You probably have at least two or three. And uh, even though you know uh, that they're a problem and you'd like to get rid of them, uh, at the very least, what we think is, well, we're going to try to manage them. We'll manage them. And you and I probably, uh, this may not be the case for everyone, uh, the things that I struggle with are a little, more, a little bit more manageable. Right? They're not quite as public as sins that other people struggle with. And so you can look at me and say, He's got it all together. But little do you know, I'm really managing it. One of the things that uh, I found when I was in seminary is the most powerful person in the seminary was not the dean, the principal, the president, uh, nobody in any academic authority. Uh, do you know who the most powerful person was that with one word could absolutely bring your ministry career crashing down? You know, it's funny you should say that. Uh, I, I was famous for, I grew up in a very small town in Virginia and was famous for keeping my door unlocked and people took advantage of that. And um, I had certain things in my, my, my room that everybody wanted. And uh, I went in there one day and I had just gotten a care package from my, my dad's sister, my aunt. And it was for Easter and there was this giant chocolate egg. And I put it up on a shelf, and I just I kept thinking, how am I going to navigate this thing? This is huge. And I'm gonna have so uh, one day I'd come home, and I'd been thinking about this chocolate egg, and I said, I'm going to demolish that thing. And I walked into the room, and I unwrapped it, and I looked at it, and I went, ah! And I just started going at it. And all of a sudden, I hear this sort of subdued laughing in the corner, and I turned, and there's John Zoll, and he said, I didn't know whether to jump out and scare you or just watch you be an idiot and eat this egg. And, it, and I was like... With chocolate, I'm like, get out! Um, but yes, your roommate would be uh, someone that could absolutely torpedo. But even more than that, um, the IT volunteer. My seminary didn't have a full-time IT guy, but the guy uh, volunteered. And this guy saw everything that every student looked at on the Internet. And what we found is that there were some guys who were a little... Like there are people that are very transparent, and then there are people that are really transparent, and you know will tell you things, and it's sort of like talking to a floodlight, and you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And uh, we had a couple guys in the seminary who are very transparent about what they were up to on the on the internet, uh, which in some ways refreshing, but also was a little bit like, okay, we we know. Uh, but uh, what uh, 
people often found is that there were all these programs that you could use to monitor your internet activity. And uh, actually what that created was not accountability, uh, but what it created was everyone had all these very creative ways that struggled with those issues of getting around that system like using different sort of downloading devices that the other, the nanny wouldn't pick up on and all these things. So this is just to say, if you have kids, they'll figure it out, right? They'll, you know, these things that say parental controls. <laughs> the only thing they control are the parents, right? Because we think those are our options. So what we find with the sins is that we try to manage them and we actually find ways to indulge them and yet at the same time sort of squirrel them away so that nobody needs uh, to know about it. And oftentimes uh, what the church teaches actually undoes the power of the truth about us that AA teaches. And so, of course, the first step is that, is that we um, are powerless and our lives are unmanageable. And over the years, there have been several attempts by the church to, um, to make AA a little more Christian, or at least a little more explicit. Uh, one of them is out at Saddleback Church in California, and what they call their addiction recovery program is Celebrate Recovery. Celebrate Recovery. Well, what's in a name? Uh, already, it's undone the power of acknowledging and saying what a thing is. If you are out of the gate saying, celebrate recovery. Now there's a spirit of expectation that as you work the steps, that God will actually be in the midst and work and you're gonna work towards sobriety. Uh, but the whole idea of celebration and victory right out of the gate is the opposite of what AA and even the Bible teach about one who is struggling and dealing with sin. John's thesis for his book is AA and traditional Reformation Christianity make sense of life in a way that is relevant to every person. Now when AA talks about God, it sees God as the rescuer of troubled people. The rescuer of troubled people. Not people who have their act together or think that they have it going on or think that their sin is somehow manageable. Because the fact of the matter is, is that what happens with sin in our lives, you know, I have two ways of, of dealing with it as the world does. One is I can try to manage it, but if you look at your life as a stage with a front stage and a backstage, uh, some of us have bigger front stages than we do backstage. It may be that your sins are, are a little bit easier to contain than others. But after a while, the backstage is going to begin to fill up. It's, look at this illustration. Uh, the backstage is going to... The backstage is going to be able to is going to fill up so much that eventually, what's going to happen? It's going to spill out on the front stage, right? <laughs> you're not the illustration for that, but there you go. <laughs> eventually, all the stuff that you're trying to keep behind the curtain is going to spill out, and then you're taking the time and trying to manage it to put it back behind the curtain. But it doesn't work that way. I think sometimes in my life, if I look at the sins that I struggle with, uh, that uh, God, if you could just deal with this one sin in my life, I'd be pretty great. Right? I'd be a whole lot better person. I'd be a better father. I'd be a better husband. I'd be a better friend. So if this one issue were just to work itself out, that would be helpful. And sure enough, it is helpful. But what happens is it's sort of like being a parking lot in a parking lot that that sin might vacate the parking spot, but there's always one more that's ready to pull right in. Right? 
That's exactly what happens because, as Calvin said, our hearts are veritable idol factories, that it's our nature to actually create idols uh, to worship in our own lives. And the only reason why we want to manage sin is is to be able to have some semblance of control in our lives and to think that we can get it all together. And then even sometimes we think, well, it's really not that bad. And it's all under the guise, and this is what the world tells us, is that you can control it. You can keep it all together. But if you've actually ever really grappled with something significant and serious in your life, whether it's alcohol addiction or you've seen someone in your life uh, grapple with it, uh, it's not simply a matter of just choose to do better. Just try a little bit harder. The world tells us that we are free agents making choices and that life is a matter of performance and accomplishment. Instead, addiction echoes the biblical portrait of original sin, where man is in conflict with God and unable to surrender his prerogatives. Uh, Alcoholics are not free to choose sobriety. Fitzallison said, The amazing thing about the alcoholic is that he can choose between gin and beer and whiskey, but he can't choose not to drink. And so what AA teaches, and what the Bible certainly teaches, is that the will is bound. Any kind of behavior that willpower has, any kind of behavior that willpower has proven insufficient in controlling or curbing, workaholism, manic depression, compulsive exercise, that's my problem, obsessive parenting, (laughs) or road rage, to name just a few, offer a relevant glimpse into the problem of life which both AA and Christianity seek to address. And one of the things is that the way that sin operates in our lives is that it's not actually a struggle that is indicative of our bound will or struggle with something bad. What about struggles with things that are good? Actually, people who seemingly do have their acts together, who are well accomplished, the fact that they've accomplished everything that they have strived to accomplish may also be indicative of the fact that they are bound, that they're tethered to this world of being able to to seek out and accomplish whatever is placed in front of them. Indeed, I know for me that I normally will have some sort of goal out there set for me in life. And I think, you know, and I know that this is so silly and it seems so, I know that in the midst of, but there's a part of me that thinks if I accomplish this or I do this, I'll feel a little bit better about things. I'll feel a little bit better about things. And then it happens, and I think, well, shoot. (laughs) Now what? Now what? And so, well, clearly it must be something else that I need to strive for. It's something else that I need to accomplish. And all that is, it's the same thing that the alcoholic deals with in drinking. Uh, Drunk uh, with ambition and accomplishment. Now, in AA, you have these 12 steps, and um, often in the language of AA, uh, they talk about working the steps, and lest anybody think that AA or the Bible uh, teach any sort of workspace righteousness, it's not true. In fact, uh, that it is by grace and God taking the initiative that the alcoholic is able to work the steps. It's only by God's grace and initiative that sinners are actually able to find relief and rescue in him. 
John didn't give me credit for this uh, illustration, and so I'm a little bit miffed by that, but I hope to see a royalty check soon. Uh, but there's an illustration that he uses, uh, and uh, I use frequently, because it's mine. Uh, but, uh, but it's the story of a man who's on an ocean liner, and he falls off the boat. And as he's falling off the boat into the water, he's not a very good swimmer, and uh, so he's just struggling mightily just to stay afloat. And thankfully, there's somebody walking on the deck and sees him, pulls the alarm, and uh, says, man overboard, and throws the guy, uh, a, one of those orange ringy thingies, into the water attached to a rope, and he grabs it with desperation, and they pull him up onto the deck. Now, uh, at that point, uh, what if the man said, did you see me reach out and grab that raft? Wasn't it amazing? I mean, I sat in the water, and I thought about it, but I made the decision to be rescued. <laughs> right? You would say, throw him back. <laughs> right? <laughs> Throw them back. Uh, but it's the same way with God, that God uh, takes the initiative and throws us the life raft. And for us to say no, and I'm just going to stay in the water, it means that we're deluded. It means that we actually haven't come to a place where we see the necessity for rescue. Um, I read a New Yorker comic uh, recently that uh, had this beat-up football player, probably a Clemson player, uh, at the end of uh, at the end of a game, and uh, and he's looking a little downcast, and the reporter has the microphone in his mouth, and uh, the football player says, "Well, first off, I'd like to blame God for our loss today." <laughs> uh, I mean, it's very funny. In our world, if we win, it's by skill. Right? If we win, it's because we worked hard, because we made it happen. And if we lose, it's because of bad luck, that something just didn't go our way. No one ever says, well, I, I really blew it. I really blew it. We always have an excuse as to why we blew it. But what happens in AA and what happens in the Christian life is that you come to a place where you're in the water and you realize, I'm here because of me. I'm here because of me. And you realize the severity of the situation, and not just the severity of it, but the reality of it. You see things as they really are. Now, while you're floating in the water, at one point in time, you might have delusions of grandeur, and you think, well, if I just point myself, you know, I'll float here for a little bit, I'll wait for the North Star to come out, and I'll just, uh, you know, I'll make a sextant out of some seaweed and driftwood, and I'll be able to navigate myself uh, to the nearest shore 800 miles away. Now, theoretically, I suppose that you could do that, but not really. Uh, but what happens when God intervenes in our life is that we realize we're hopelessly lost. We're hopelessly lost. And all of our rescue schemes, all of our attempts to keep things behind the curtain uh, have failed miserably and will fail as they always have. And so you come to a place where you admit that you are powerless and that your life has become unmanageable. And it's not just in terms of addiction uh, to a substance again, it's our addiction to sin, that for Christians, indeed, you have to realize that things have to get worse before they can get better. Right? If you think that you need just a little bit of help in your spiritual life, if you think that you just need Jesus as a swim coach as opposed to a lifeguard, you're still treading water. 
right? You're still trying to manage uh, the backstage. Uh, but the crazy thing is, is in the moment you cry out, I'm drowning, I'm lost, I can't save myself. And not only that, but I'm pulling everybody down around me. Because if I could point to any, any issue in my marriage, in my relationship, to, where is my wife? Is she here? Okay. Right. <laughs> Different story. Just kidding. Uh, <clears throat> so, right. Um, you know, early on in marriage, when when you're or at any time in marriage, uh, you know, your thought is, you know, if the other person could be just just a little bit more like me, things would be awesome. Right? <laughs> That's what you think. And and yet, uh, what you find out because God is working in your life, and you love your spouse is that the single greatest problem in any relationship is your own sin. The single greatest problem, and the root cause of any and all fights, sure the other person has, has because they're sinful too, but the moment that you're able to actually acknowledge that the single greatest problem in your relationship is your own sin, um, as depressing as that is, as soon as you acknowledge that, hope springs to life. Hope springs to life because now all of a sudden there's a way. And acknowledging that you are the biggest problem and that you're powerless to do anything about it and you're sucking everybody into the abyss, although it looks like things are at their worst, that acknowledgement actually creates hope and promise in the life of the individual. But in order for us to get there, we have to be crushed. We have to come to a place where we cry uncle. Biblically speaking, it's where we are crushed by the law, the hammer of the law, as Martin Luther said, that when we hear God's law, his demands on our lives, we throw up our arms. We throw up our arms. Um, when uh, I always get very nervous when we ask people what their favorite Bible verse is, uh, because then I know, Andrew, just keep your mouth shut. Uh, but um, you know, it, I guess what's more interesting is if you work through work if you work your way through we don't do it as much anymore but if you go through an old churchyard historic cemetery and you see Bible verses uh, engraved on tombstones uh, that really says a lot about people there was one in Beaufort and it said the bell of Beaufort and I thought oh really uh, <clears throat> uh, and I actually preached a sermon on her once um, but but there are but it's interesting to see what verses. People put them on them, and um, there are a couple ministers in the churchyard in Beaufort that are buried there, and uh, some of them read things like, woe be unto me if I do not preach the gospel, uh, or for I seek nothing to know, any, I seek to know nothing amongst you other than Christ and him crucified. And you look at those and you think, yes, that, that, that's, that's great. Uh, but then you read those that do sort of puff up and, and make them sound really wonderful, but then you sit there and you wonder, who remembers them now? Uh, who remembers them now? And yet, the staying power of those other promises uh, there um, is lasting. And so when we look at the Bible, and um, there are verses that a lot of people, I think, will try to seek comfort from that really are not necessarily meant as comfort. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Right? Great Bible verse, but do we really know what it means? If you would only seek God first in everything that you do, everything will be added unto you. The end. Right? True. Right? If you would just seek God first in everything, 
everything would be fine. But what's the problem? We never, ever seek God first. So uh, it's very funny when after the Sermon on the Mount, I think people get this impression that after Jesus has preached this sermon, everyone went away and said, that was awesome. That was amazing. But like, I mean, what if you had heard me get up? Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. I hate this preacher. Right? <laughs> what? Like, give me something I can take home. Give me something. I have told you the truth that you've heard it said, do not murder. But if you have hated your brother in your heart, you're just as guilty as the guy who's pulled the trigger. Not helpful. Not helpful. <laughs> Other, something else. Something else. Uh, and uh, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough concerns of its own. Easy for you to say, Jesus, you don't have a 529 plan because you don't have kids, right? You know, you don't have to worry about retirement. Uh, you've all got it set up. Uh, <laughs> so I, I mean, easier, easier said than done. Right? And so when we hear that, I mean, the, the reaction of people to the Sermon on the Mount is to go away sad. And that was often the reaction to Jesus that people went away sad or said, this is something unbearable. Who can hear this stuff? Who can hear it? But the people who go away and say, I've got it. I've got it. Blessed are the peacemakers. I can do that. All right. Those are the people that are actually in trouble because Jesus and the Bible will say things like, honor your mother and father. They will give God's demands on us are so great that we're going to fail at every turn. And the intention of that is to point us toward a savior, to point us toward, there to remind us you're in the water and things are really bad. The law says, swim harder in the direction of Havana, right? Uh, but the gospel says, believe, believe. Help is on the way. Rescue is coming. Uh, that's what the gospel says. And so when the law has actually done its work, where you can actually throw up your hands and say, I give up. Right, that little piece of uh, Jack Kerouac's haiku, uh, whatever it is, I quit. Right, it's true. Uh, and yet, there are still some people that hear the law of God, and even though God's demand on us is still that we keep it, is still that we keep it, they think that they can do it because the Bible actually does put forward two ways of being saved. It does. One, which everybody's familiar with, is through calling upon the strong, strong name of Jesus Christ putting your hope and trust in him. The other way is keep the law perfectly. Keep the law perfectly. And there are people in the world that think, like the rich young man, all these things I have done since I was a young man. Clearly, he was not married. Right? <laughs> so, so when the law has done its work, only then can we appreciate the gospel message. Only then can we appreciate the gospel message. And churches have fallen into the pitfall of doing one of two things. They either preach law, gospel law, or law, actually more than one, two things, uh, or sometimes they'll just preach gospel. Now, I'm using very technical terms, so let's flesh that out. Uh, often in church what happens is they'll preach the law and you feel crushed. You're at the place where you cry uncle. And then they give you the gospel. And then after that they say, okay, now let's turn it back on you. Let's talk about swim lessons. Right? Not helpful. Not helpful at all. And it just drives people into despair and gives them the impression that life is somehow manageable and that you can keep things behind the curtain. Uh, the other way is just to preach 
law that you need uh, just to get your act together and uh, and you'll make it happen. Um, you know, uh, helpful, you know, um, Christian hints uh, on how to be a better whatever. Carpenter, skateboarder, bed and breakfast keeper. I mean, there, there are all these books are out there. I've seen them. Um, or there are times when people will simply just say, Jesus Christ loves you, full stop. Well, that's really nice to know, right? But you will never, ever appreciate the depth and the costliness of that message until you are first crushed. Right? It's sort of like walking into, uh, there's another, this is terrible, but uh, there's another great New Yorker cartoon where the doctor is walking into the room and he says, anywho, it's malignant. Um, <laughs> really awful. Uh, it would be something, you know, like the doctor walking into the room and saying, okay, uh, we need to talk about treatments for your cancer. Why? Why? Well, it, uh, you know, it, we just need... Well, why do I need any of that stuff? You, you have to know that you're sick, right? The law is the mirror that shows us that our face is dirty, but it won't ever clean it. You need soap and water, and the gospel is the soap and water that will actually clean our dirty uh, faces. And so what AA does is it approaches right out of the gate uh, crushed people, people who understand that God's office is at the end of their rope. Um, and this is, is who we are. Now this might seem depressing uh, because oftentimes what the church wants to do is when we, when we come to a relationship with Jesus Christ, people will often say that, um, that it's, they come at a, a moment of victory Right? They come, it's actually a good moment when they come to Jesus. But what the Bible tells us is that actually, uh, when we come to him, it's not a moment of victory. It's a moment of defeat, wherein we realize that we are undone. So I just want to uh, uh, read uh, a little Bible passage um, that explains exactly uh, where we are. So they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John, and along with him he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Uh, even when we try to put our best foot forward, uh, we are found asleep uh, at the wheel. I mean, here were the disciples in the moment when Jesus needed them most, when he was relying on them uh, most. And all he was really asking is just stay awake uh, and pray. A very simple request. And yet the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. And so what we see here in the disciples is in that most of us in the world have an inaccurate perception of ourselves and how we really 
are in life. We have an inaccurate perception of ourselves and how we are in life. Gerhard Forde, who wrote being, on being a theologian of the cross, and by the way, this book is available in the bookstore if you want to follow along, um, writes this in his book on being a theologian of the cross. He says, I use the analogy of addiction throughout the book in the attempt to demonstrate the difference between the theologian of glory and the theologian of the cross. The theologian of glory is like one who considers curing addiction by optimistic exhortation. The theologian of the cross knows that the cure is much more drastic. Theologians of the cross operate on the assumption that there must be, to use the language of treatment for addicts, a bottoming out or an intervention. That is to say, there is no cure for the addict on his own. In theological terms, we must come to confess that we are addicted to sin, addicted to self, whatever form that may take, pious or impious. The remedy for curing desire does not lie in satisfying it, but in extinguishing it. The cross does the extinguishing. The cross is the death of sin and the sinner. The cross does the bottoming out. The cross is the intervention. For a resurrection to happen, there must first be a death. The truth must be heard and confessed. Then there is hope. A new life can begin, and with it, a new sense of self-worth can blossom. For in the end we arrive, as we shall see at the love of God, which creates anew out of nothing. So we begin the journey. Uh, one of the Anglican divines, Richard Hooker, wrote this about his own spiritual life. My eager protestations made in the glory of my ghostly strength I am ashamed of, but those crystal tears wherewith my sin and weakness was bewailed have procured my endless joy. My strength hath been my ruin, and my fall my stay. And so that is uh, step one. Uh, we're going to pick up next week uh, with three and four, and then um, uh, the remaining uh, nine throughout there. So I think the book is broken up. We're going to finish part one next week, part two the following week, and part three the final week. So uh, that's where I'll leave it. Questions, comments, concerns? Okay. <laughs> Praise God for people who have their acts together. Okay. <laughs> All right. You can always email me. And, and I, I mean, I have a feeling, I mean, why there are lots of people here is uh, this hits close to home. This hits close to home. And we're actually going to talk about uh, dealing with those in our lives who, who are addicts uh, as we move forward. But, but the key to it is laying that base of understanding who we are uh, and how it is that God relates to us as we flail about in the seas of life. Let us pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, for rescuing us even when we do not ask or deserve, uh, for taking that first step in the intervention to save us, we give you great thanks, Lord, that you would bring us to a place where we would cry out, Uncle, Lord, knowing that your arm is never too short to save. And so we thank you, merciful Lord Jesus, uh, for loving us enough to die for us, even in our weakness, that we could not stay awake even just one hour. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.